Chapter Three of Characters of Shakespeare's Plays by William Hazlitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo and Eva Davis. Macbeth. The poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown the poet's pen turns them to shape and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name macbeth and lear othello and hamlet are usually reckoned shakespeare's four principal tragedies lear stands first for the profound intensity of the passion macbeth for the wildness of the imagination and the rapidity of the action othello for the progressive interest and powerful alternations of feeling hamlet for the refined development of thought and sentiment if the force of genius shown in each of these works is astonishing their variety is not less so they are like different creations of the same mind not one of which has the slightest reference to the rest this distinctness and originality is indeed the necessary consequence of truth and nature shakespeare's genius alone appeared to possess the resource of nature he is your only tragedy maker his plays have the force of things upon the mind what he represents is brought home to the bosom as a part of our experience implanted in the memory as if we had known the places persons and things of which he treats macbeth is like a record of a preternatural and tragical event it has the rugged severity of an old chronicle with all that the imagination of the poet can engraft upon traditional belief the castle of macbeth round which the air smells wooingly and where the temple haunting martlet builds has a real subsistence in the mind the weird sisters meet us in person on the blasted heath the air-drawn dagger moves slowly before our eyes the gracious duncan the blood-boltered banquo stand before us all that passed through the mind of macbeth passes without the loss of a tittle through ours all that could actually take place in all that is only possible to be conceived what was said and what was done the workings of passion the spells of magic are brought before us with the same absolute truth and vividness shakespeare excelled in the openings of his plays that of macbeth is the most striking of any the wildness of the scenery the sudden shifting of the situations and characters the bustle the expectations excited are equally extraordinary from the first entrance of the witches and the description of them when they meet macbeth what are these so withered and so wild in their attire that look not like the inhabitants of the earth and yet are aunt the mind is prepared for all that follows this tragedy is alike distinguished for the lofty imagination it displays and for the tumultuous vehemence of the action and the one is made the moving principle of the other the overwhelming pressure of preternatural agency urges on the tide of human passion 
with redoubled force macbeth himself appears driven along by the violence of his fate like a vessel drifting before a storm he reels to and fro like a drunken man he staggers under the weight of his own purposes and the suggestions of others he stands at bay with his situation and from the superstitious awe and the breathless suspense into which the communications of the weird sisters throw him is hurried on with daring impatience to verify their predictions and with impious and bloody hand to tear aside the veil which hides the uncertainty of the future he is not equal to the struggle with fate and conscience he now bends up each corporal instrument to the terrible feet at other times his heart misgives him and he is cowed and abashed by his success the deed no less than the attempt confounds him his mind is assailed by the stings of remorse and full of preternatural solicitings his speeches and soliloquies are dark riddles on human life baffling solution and entangling him in their labyrinths in thought he is absent and perplexed sudden and desperate in act from a distrust of his own resolution his energy springs from the anxiety and agitation of his mind his blindly rushing forward on the objects of his ambition and revenge or his recoiling from them equally betrays the harassed state of his feelings this part of his character is admirably set off by being brought in connection with that of lady macbeth whose obdurate strength of will and masculine firmness give her the ascendancy over her husband's faltering virtue she at once seizes on the opportunity that offers for the accomplishment of all their wished-for greatness and never flinches from her object till all is over the magnitude of her resolution almost covers the magnitude of her guilt she is a great bad woman whom we hate but whom we fear more than we hate she does not excite our loathing in abhorrence like regan and goneril she is only wicked to gain a great end and is perhaps more distinguished by her commanding presence of mind and inexorable self-will which do not suffer her to be diverted from a bad purpose when once formed by weak and womanly regrets than by the hardness of her heart or want of natural affections the impression which her lofty determination of character makes on the mind of macbeth is well described where he exclaims bring forth men children only for thy undaunted metal should compose nothing but males nor do the pains she is at to screw his courage to the sticking-place the reproach to him not to be lost so poorly in himself the assurance that a little water clears them of this deed show anything but her greater consistency and depravity her strong-nerved ambition furnishes ribs of steel to the sides of his intent and she is herself wound up to the execution of her baneful project with the same unshrinking fortitude in crime that in other circumstances she would probably have shown patience and suffering the deliberate sacrifice of all other considerations to the gaining for their future days and nights sole sovereign sway and masterdom by the murder of duncan 
is gorgeously expressed in her invocation on hearing of his fatal entrance under her battlements come all you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty make thick my blood stop up the access and passage of remorse that no compunctuous visitings of nature shake my fell purpose nor keep peace between the effect and it come to my woman's breasts and take my milk for gall you murthering ministers wherever in your sightless substances you wait on nature's mischief come thick night and pall thee in the dunnest smoke of hell that my keen knife see not the wound it makes nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry hold hold when she first hears that duncan comes there to sleep she is so overcome by the news which is beyond her utmost expectations that she answers the messenger thou art mad to say it and on receiving her husband's account of the predictions of the witches conscious of his instability of purpose and that her presence is necessary to goad him on to the consummation of his promised greatness she exclaims hie thee hither that i may pour my spirits in thine ear and chastise with the valour of my tongue all that impedes thee from the golden round which fate and metaphysical aid doth seem to have thee crowned withal this swelling exultation and keen spirit of triumph this uncontrollable eagerness of anticipation which seems to dilate her form and take possession of all her faculties the solid substantial flesh-and-blood display of passion exhibit a striking contrast to the cold abstracted gratuitous servile malignity of the witches who are equally instrumental in urging macbeth to his fate for the mere love of mischief and from a disinterested delight in deformity and cruelty they are hags of mischief obscene panderers to iniquity malicious from their impotence of enjoyment enamoured of destruction because they are themselves unreal abortive half-existences and who become sublime from their exemption from all human sympathies and contempt for all human affairs as lady macbeth does by the force of passion her fault seems to have been in excess of that strong principle of self-interest and family aggrandizement not amenable to the common feelings of compassion and justice which is so marked a feature in barbarous nations and times a passing reflection of this kind on the resemblance of the sleeping king to her father alone prevents her from slaying duncan with her own hand in speaking of the character of lady macbeth we ought not to pass over mrs siddon's manner of acting that part we can conceive of nothing grander it was something above nature it seemed almost as if a being of superior order had dropped from a higher sphere to awe the world with the majesty of her appearance power was seated on her brow passion emanated from her breast as from a shrine she was tragedy personified in coming on in the sleeping scene her eyes were open but their sense was shut she was like a person bewildered and unconscious of what she did her lips moved involuntarily 
all her gestures were involuntary and mechanical she glided on and off the stage like an apparition to have seen her in that character was an event in every one's life not to be forgotten the dramatic beauty of the character of duncan which excites the respect and pity even of his murderers has been often pointed out it forms a picture of itself an instance of the author's power of giving a striking effect to a common reflection by the manner of introducing it occurs in a speech of duncan complaining of his having been deceived in his opinion of the thane of cawdor at the very moment that he is expressing the most unbounded confidence in the loyalty and services of macbeth there is no art to find the mind's construction in the face he was a gentleman on whom i built an absolute trust o worthiest cousin addressing himself to macbeth the sin of my ingratitude even now was great upon me etc etc another passage to show that shakespeare lost sight of nothing that could in any way give relief or heightening to a subject is the conversation which takes place between banco and fleance immediately before the murder scene of duncan banquo how goes the night boy fleance the moon is down i've not heard the clock banquo and she goes down at twelve fleance i take it tis later sir banquo hold take my sword there's husbandry in heaven their candles are all out a heavy summons lies like lead upon me and yet i would not sleep merciful powers restrain in me the cursed thoughts that nature gives way to in repose in like manner a fine idea is given of the gloomy coming on of evening just as banquo is going to be assassinated light thickens and the crow makes wing to the rookie wood now spurs the lated traveller apace to gain the timely inn macbeth generally speaking is done upon a stronger and more systematic principle of contrast than any other of shakespeare's plays it moves upon the verge of an abyss and is a constant struggle between life and death the action is desperate and the reaction is dreadful it is a huddling together of fierce extremes a war of opposite natures which of them shall destroy the other there is nothing but what has a violent end or violent beginnings the lights and shades are laid on with a determined hand the transitions from triumph to despair from the height of terror to the repose of death are sudden and startling every passion brings in its fellow contrary and the thoughts pitch and jostle against each other as in the dark the whole play is an unruly chaos of strange and forbidden things where the ground rocks under our feet shakespeare's genius here took its full swing and trod upon the furthest bounds of nature and passion this circumstance will account for the abruptness and violent antitheses of this style the throes and labor which run through the expression and from defects will turn them into beauties 
so fair and foul a day i have not seen etc such welcome and unwelcome news together men's lives are like the flowers in their caps dying or ere they sicken look like the innocent flower but be the serpent under it the scene before the castle gate follows the appearance of the witches on the heath and is followed by a midnight murder duncan is cut off betimes by treason leagued with witchcraft and macduff is ripped untimely from his mother's womb to avenge his death macbeth after the death of banquo wishes for his presence in extravagant terms to him and all we thirst and when his ghost appears cries out avaunt and quit my sight and being gone he is himself again macbeth resolves to get rid of macduff that he may sleep in spite of thunder and cheers his wife on the doubtful intelligence of banquo's taking off with the encouragement then be thou jocund ere the bat has flown his cloistered flight ere to black hecate's summons the shard-borne beetle has rung night's yawning peal there shall be done a deed of dreadful note in lady macbeth's speech had he not resembled my father as he slept i had done it there is murder and filial piety together and in urging him to fulfil his vengeance against the defenceless king her thoughts spare the blood neither of infants nor old age the description of the witches is full of the same contradictory principle they rejoice when good kings bleed they are neither of the earth nor the air but both they should be women but their beards forbid it they take all the pains possible to lead macbeth on to the heights of his ambition only to betray him in deeper consequence and after showing him all the pomp of their art discover their malignant delight in his disappointed hopes by that bitter taunt why stands macbeth thus amazedly we might multiply such instances everywhere the leading features in the character of macbeth are striking enough and they form what may be thought at first only a bold rude gothic outline by comparing it with other characters of the same author we shall perceive the absolute truth and identity which is observed in the midst of the giddy whirl and rapid career of events macbeth in shakespeare no more loses his identity of character in the fluctuations of fortune or the storm of passion than macbeth in himself would have lost the identity of his person thus he is as distinct a being from richard the third as it is possible to imagine though these two characters in common hands and indeed in the hands of any other poet would have been a repetition of the same general idea more or less exaggerated for both are tyrants usurpers murderers both aspiring and ambitious both courageous cruel treacherous but richard is cruel from nature and constitution macbeth becomes so from accidental circumstances richard is from his birth deformed in body and mind and naturally incapable of good macbeth is full of the milk of human kindness is frank sociable generous he is tempted to the commission of guilt by golden opportunities by the instigations of his wife and by prophetic warnings fate and metaphysical aid conspire against his virtue 
and his loyalty. Richard, on the contrary, needs no prompter, but wades through his series of crimes to the height of his ambition, from the ungovernable violence of his temper, and a reckless love of mischief. He is never gay but in the prospect or in the success of his villainies. Macbeth is full of horror at the thoughts of the murder of Duncan, which he is with difficulty prevailed on to commit, and of remorse after its perpetration. Richard has no mixture of common humanity in his composition, no regard to kindred or posterity. He owns no fellowship with others. He is himself alone. Macbeth is not destitute of feelings of sympathy, is accessible to pity, is even made in some measure the dupe of his uxoriousness, ranks the loss of friends of the cordial love of his followers, and of his good name among the causes which have made him weary of life, and regrets that he has ever seized the crown by unjust means, since he cannot transmit it to his own posterity. For Banquo's issue have I filled my mind, for them the gracious Duncan have I murthered, to make them kings, the seed of Banquo kings. In the agitation of his thoughts, he envies those whom he has sent to peace. Duncan is in his grave. After life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. It is true, he becomes more callous as he plunges deeper in guilt. Direness is thus rendered familiar to his slaughterous thoughts, and he in the end anticipates his wife in the boldness and bloodiness of his enterprises, while she, for want of the same stimulus of action, is troubled with thick-coming fancies that rob her of her rest, goes mad, and dies. Macbeth endeavors to escape from reflections on his crimes by repelling their consequences and banishes remorse for the past by the meditation of future mischief. This is not the principle of Richard's cruelty, which resembles the wanton malice of a fiend as much as the frailty of human passion. Macbeth is goaded on to acts of violence and retaliation by necessity. To Richard, blood is a pastime. There are other decisive differences inherent in the two characters. Richard may be regarded as a man of the world, a plodding, hardened knave, wholly regardless of everything but his own ends, whom a means to secure them. Not so Macbeth. The superstitions of the age, the rude state of society, the local scenery and customs, all give a wildness and imaginary grandeur to his character. From the strangeness of the events that surround him, he is full of amazement and fear, and stands in doubt between the world of reality and the world of fancy. He sees sights not shown to mortal eyes, and hears unearthly music. All is tumult and disorder, within and without his mind. His purposes recoil upon himself, are broken and disjointed. He is the double thrall of his passions and his evil destiny. Richard is not a character either of imagination or pathos, but of pure self-will. There is no conflict of opposite feelings in his breast. The apparitions which he sees only haunt him in his sleep, nor does he live like Macbeth in a waking dream. Macbeth has considerable energy and manliness of character, but then he is subject to all the skyey influences. He is sure of nothing but the present moment. 
Richard, in the busy turbulence of his projects, never loses his self-possession, and makes use of every circumstance that happens as an instrument of his long-reaching designs. In his last extremity we can only regard him as a wild beast taken in the toils. We never entirely lose our concern for Macbeth, and he calls back all our sympathy by that fine close of thoughtful melancholy. My way of life has fallen into the seer, the yellow leaf, and that which should accompany old age as honor, troops of friends, I must not look to have, but in their stead, curses not loud but deep, mouth, honor, breath, which the poor heart would fain deny and dare not. We can conceive a common actor to play Richard tolerably well. We can conceive no one to play Macbeth properly, or to look like a man that had encountered the weird sisters. All the actors we have ever seen appear as if they had encountered them on the boards of Covent Garden or Drury Lane, but not on the heath at Forest, and as if they did not believe what they had seen. The witches of Macbeth, indeed, are ridiculous on the modern stage, and we doubt if the furies of Aeschylus would be more respected. The progress of manners and knowledge has an influence on the stage, and will in time perhaps destroy both tragedy and comedy. Filch's picking pockets in the beggar's opera is not so good a jest as it used to be. By the force of the police and of philosophy, Lilo's murderers and the ghosts in Shakespeare will become obsolete. At last there will be nothing left, good nor bad, to be desired or dreaded, on the theatre or in real life. A question has been started with respect to the originality of Shakespeare's witches, which had been well answered by Mr. Lamb in his notes to the specimens of early dramatic poetry. Though some resemblance may be traced between the charms in Macbeth and the incantations in this play, The Witch of Middleton, which is supposed to have preceded it, this coincidence will not detract much from the originality of Shakespeare. His witches are distinguished from the witches of Middleton by essential differences. These are creatures to whom man or women, plotting some dire mischief, might resort for occasional consultation. Those originate deeds of blood, and begin bad impulses to men. From the moment that their eyes first meet with Macbeth, he is spellbound. That meeting sways his destiny. He can never break the fascination. These witches can hurt the body. Those have power over the soul. Hecate in Middleton has a son, a low buffoon. The hags of Shakespeare have neither child of their own nor seem to be descended from any parent. They are foul anomalies, of whom we know not whence they are sprung, nor whether they have beginning or ending. As they are without human passions, so they seem to be without human relations. They come with thunder and lightning and vanish to airy music. This is all we know of them except hecate they have no names which heightens their mysteriousness the names and some of the properties which middleton has given to his hags excite smiles the weird sisters are serious things their presence cannot coexist with mirth but in a lesser degree the witches of middleton are fine creations their power too is in some measure over the mind they raise jars jealousies strifes like a thick scurf or life
End of Macbeth 